Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 13. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became frustrated to the point of illness on account of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now Amnon had a friend named Jonadab, son of Shimea, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon, Why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? Amnon said to him, I am in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so that I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so that I may eat from her hand. David sent word to Tamar at the palace, Go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left. (coughs) Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food here into my bedroom so that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, Come to bed with me, my sister. Don't, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would like it, would you, you would like, sorry, you would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her, and since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, Get up and get out. No, she said to him, Sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you've already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, Get this woman out of here and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. She was wearing richly ornamented robe, for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornamented robe she was wearing. She put her hand on her head and went away weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has that Amnon your brother been with you? Be quiet now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. When King David heard all this, he was furious. Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. 
Two years later, when Absalom's sheep shearers were at Baal Hazor near the border of Ephraim, he invited all the king's sons to come there. Absalom went to the king and said, Your servant has had shearers come. Will the king and his officials please join me? No, my son, the king replied. All of us should not go. We would only be a burden to you. Although Absalom urged him, he still refused to go, but he gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon come with us. The king asked him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, so he sent with him Amnon and the rest of the king's sons. Absalom ordered his men, Listen, when Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine, I say, and I say to you, Strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid, have I not given you this order? Be strong and brave. So Absalom's men did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. Then all the king's sons got up, mounted their mules and fled. While they were on their way, the report came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, not one of them is left. The king stood up, tore his clothes and lay down on the ground, and all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. But Jonadab, son of Shimea, King David's brother, said, My lord should not think that they killed all the princes. Only Amnon is dead. This has been Absalom's expressed intention ever since the day that Amnon raped his sister Tamar. My lord the king should not be concerned about the report that all the king's sons are dead. Only Amnon is dead. Meanwhile, Absalom had fled. Now the man standing watch looked up and saw many people on the road west of him coming down the side of the hill. The watchman went and told the king, I see men in the direction of Hohenaim on the side of the hill. Jonadab said to the king, See, the king's sons are here. It has happened just as your servant said. As he finished speaking, the king's sons came in, wailing loudly. The king too and all his servants wept very bitterly. Absalom fled and went to Talmai, son of Amahud, the king of Geshur. But King David mourned for his son every day. After Absalom fled and went to Geshur, he stayed there for three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go to Absalom, for he was consoled concerning Amnon's death. And then our second reading is in Matthew 5. And we just read verses to start with 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And then verse 27. You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to go into hell. 
This is God's word. Oh my goodness, what an extraordinary story. That is just extraordinary, isn't it? And um, can I just reassure you that if you're here visiting, it isn't like that every week. Uh, it isn't rape and murder uh, every week, every account that's in the Bible. This is an extraordinary account. Uh, but don't panic. If nothing else, Aidan and Sarah are offering a stiff drink after the service. And uh, you just need to get through to then. Uh, let me pray for some help as we look at this account together. Father God, this is a strange story to our ears. We know you've recorded it for a purpose and you you speak to us through it. Help us to understand clearly uh, what you're saying and how you'd have us respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I mean, this is an extraordinary account, isn't it? I mean, when you come along to church, I mean, much nicer to get a nice psalm. I thought to myself this week, Maybe there's plenty of passages. Jesus loves the little children. They'd be nicer and everyone would appreciate them, I'm sure, a little bit more than something such as this. It is an extraordinary account of brutality. And in one sense, that I hope you don't take offense at a passage such as this, because let's be honest with one another. Much of what is here is what's entertainment on television. If you watched anything like The Tudors, and this is a fairly tame episode of uh, Henry VIII bodice ripping and murdering uh, on the screens, or half the things that are on TV are worse than this. In fact, it's identical to this, just dressed up as entertainment in one sense. So I hope this sort of uh, approach amongst the, uh, the monarchy isn't true of the House of Windsor. I don't think it's quite as exciting uh, in the House of Windsor. This is real life. Uh, there are not many, but there'll be one or two here who do know this in real life, fairly closely in their family, abuse of some kind. And this is real life. Let, let's not pretend with one another. These sort of things do happen tragically. But so we've got this extraordinary account, and then we'll come back to this a little later on, but probably even worse is Jesus raises the bar and then says, oh, those horrific events, murder, adultery. Look, if you're angry, if you have a lust in your heart, well, you're in the same camp as them. Really? Is is it really? It's morally equivalent to murder and to be angry? No, he's not quite saying that. But the same thought or attitude that lies behind hatred, anger, unchecked results eventually, in some, in murder. So he's not saying we're all the same, and yet, and yet there's something in the attitude which is there. So Jesus would say to us, this extraordinary account of Amnon, Tamar, Absalom, it's a little close to home for you, for us. Now, if you've been here over the last few weeks, we're working our way through the book of 2 Samuel. It's the life of David, uh, King David, David and Goliath, David, uh, the great hero in many ways. And his life has been wonderful. But then we've, we've seen over the last couple of the weeks, he made an enormous mistake. That's putting it a little mildly. He, uh, he committed adultery with a woman and then murdered her husband to, car- to carry o- and cover up the crime. So this great hero in many senses has had a calamitous fall 
And his wife is never, his life is never quite the same again. We saw, if you were here last week, he's a broken man, genuinely repentant, genuinely contrite about what he's done. But his actions have consequences. Here you have his sons raping and murdering. The apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. They are chips off the old block. It's funny how many expressions we have for that. But they've learned from his behavior. So what you have here is a poor Tamar is the pawn of the peace, but everyone else is a failure. Three failed men you see in this chapter. We'll look at them in turn briefly. Well, the second one a bit more. But um, then we'll come to the major lesson at the end. So first then, these three men. First then, there's Amnon's loveless lust is the first failure. Amnon's loveless lust. So chapter 13 and verse 1. You have Amnon then. He's the crown prince. So he'll inherit the throne. David's the king. Amnon is his firstborn son. Crown prince, prince of Wales type thing. Uh, he's got it all going from his future. He's first in line for the throne. He becomes obsessed with Tamar, his half-sister. Same dad, David, different mother. And he's obsessed with her. He, well, verse 1, he falls in love with her. That's a terrible use of the word. It's how people use it today. He doesn't fall in love with her. He lusts after her. Very different. I mean, love. Well, love is being consumed by what you can do for someone. Certainly that's true biblically. You're obsessed. How can I serve you? What can I do for you? That's love. This is lust. What can I do to you? What can I take from you? Very different. And he lusts after her. He desires to take Tamar, not to show her any affection or love. Uh, verse 2, we're told he makes himself ill with this obsessiveness, with her, his infatuation with her. Uh, but then sadly into the piece comes along this man, Jonadab, who is a shrewd but amoral. That's a dangerous combination in any world, to be very intelligent but have no morality. And that's Jonadab. And comes up with this little plan, why don't you feign sickness, or goes to plan. So Tamar comes to him, and uh, there he is lying down, and all goes to plan. And verse 11, when Tamar comes and gives him some food, Amnon grabs her, says to her, come to bed with me, my sister. Sleep with me. She still manages to speak sense, verse 12. Don't do this. It'll be a wicked thing. It'll be terrible for me. I'd never be able to get rid of my disgrace, verse 13. It'll be terrible for you. How will you ever recover from this morally? It's a terrible thing. But verse 14, he refuses to listen and he rapes her. Miserable. But then verse 15, is this a surprise? So this woman he's obsessed about... But then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he'd loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and get out. Get up and get out. Is that a surprise to you? He's obsessed about this woman for goodness knows how long. He takes her and then he hates her. I mean, hopefully you realize that's very normal. That's a very normal way because the reality is a long, long way from the fantasy that he's dreamt of. This is the fantasy in his mind of her giving him herself. It's very different from him raping her. It's a very different experience. The fantasy shattered and he's left with disappointment and shame. That's his loveless lust. That's what it produces. 
And some will be familiar with that. Let's be honest. We, we live in a culture which is sexually supercharged, which is, uses a loveless lust to sell everything, any product. Fifty years ago, fifty years ago, C.S. Lewis, the, uh, the writer, novelist, said, uh, do you realize how sexually obsessed we are? That was fifty years ago. Goodness me, what would he make of us today? But he said, imagine you went to a planet and they were just obsessed with food. Obsessed with food, used everything, used food to sell everything. So wherever you go, wherever you're looking at on, on billboards, you see in the magazines, you open your Sunday supplements and there in a magazine, uh, are people just drooling over pizzas. All the car adverts have lamb shanks draped over them. Uh, in, you know, uh, uh, razors, instead of a man in a towel and a woman in her knickers, there's a man stuffing his face with a pizza as he shaves. And people get wildly excited and go to illicit films in the night where there are cheeseburgers on the screen, dripping in fat. He said, it must be a slightly strange planet. You, what do you, what is your problem? You're just weird about food. Well, that's our culture. But with sex, we're supercharged. And it's a loveless lust. There's no giving love there. It's just all about what you can take from it. And that's always disappointing. Always disappointing. Now forgive me just for two minutes, as, as I'm just real on this. I know it's uncomfortable. Let me just be real on this for two minutes here. For many, loveless lust will involve stuff you look at. I was reading again the stats this week. In the last year in the UK, 40% of men, 20% of women have looked at pornography online. So statistically, we're here. 56% of divorces last year cited pornography as a reason for the breakdown of the marriage. That's a loveless lust. You've got to be honest about that. Don't be naive about the damage that it causes. I'm sorry, it's uncomfortable to to talk about. Of course it is. But if this is a live issue for you, and it must be for some, it must be for some, statistically, You've got to reach out to someone and say, can you help me here with this? Not to Jonadab, who will just say, go for it. Don't go for it. Find someone shrewd you can be honest with and will help. Who won't judge you, but will pray with you, support you. Because this sort of loveless lust, it's destructive. Destroys marriages, destroys walk with God, destroys you. Let's not be naive or too polite about the issue. It's a loveless lust and it's damaging. Okay, back to the story. Um, what happens? Well, Tamar's life is ruined, as is often the case. Uh, as a rape victim, Tamar will shed years of tears for the crime of another done to her. She stumbles back to Absalom, and he's absolutely hopeless. Her brother, verse 20, don't take this thing to heart. What are you talking about, you callous man? What do you mean? How could you say that to your sister who's just had this done to her? Don't take it to heart, love. Calm down. Ridiculous. Absurd. She remains a desolate woman the rest of her days. But what's the king going to do? What's the king's response? Let's move on. King David, surely he'll respond rightly. But sadly, he's the second failure because you see David's paralyzed fury. Verse 21. When King David heard all this, he was furious. And he... Oh. He did nothing. 
did nothing. Now back then, the, the king is the judiciary as well. There's no great separation of powers. You're a king, you're the judge, you're the legislator, you're the executive, you're an absolute monarch. So difficult law cases would come to the king. So he's king, yes, but he's supreme court as well. And the, the law of the time, the Mosaic law, is very clear. For someone like Amnon, he's raped a virgin, he's got to marry her. That was the law of the time. He's essentially said, I am married, I'm treating you as my wife. Okay, then you have to marry her and treat her well. And if you don't treat her well, you can be imprisoned as well. So that was the law of the time. It's very clear, you might not like it, but it was very clear and straightforward. What does David do? Nothing. And what you want to read, verse 21, when David heard all this, he was furious and he demanded that Amnon come and see him. He was furious and he sent his soldiers to go and arrest Amnon. He was infuriated, but he, he ordered Amnon to marry Tamar. He does nothing. And see how the writer puts it. When King David heard all this, he was furious. Absalom. David does nothing, so Absalom steps in and murders. Eventually we'll come to that. David does nothing. As a judge, he fails to enact the law. As a king, he fails to lead his people. As a father, he fails to protect a daughter. He does nothing. You read this and you say, David, do something. Your daughter has been abused. Do something. He does nothing. So Tamar is surrounded by men who fail her. So two little things before we move on. The first, um, it's fairly obvious, act when you need to. Let me be blunt and speak to Fathers, leaders, when there's injustice in your family, sort it out. When there's injustice in your team at work, address it. Don't be feeble, be a man, sort it out. Because a failure to act can lead to terrible consequences. I take it that no one, oh, I, I can't say that. I think it's very unlikely that anyone here gets close to an Amnon or an Absalom. But the, the failure of inaction, oh, that can be very easy to do. A failure to act when it's, as justice is crying out in front of us. When there's something we can redress but we fail to. For goodness sake, fathers protect your daughters, act justly. The obvious thing. The second, only you'll get this if you've been here uh, over the last couple of weeks. Don't be paralyzed by failure like David is here. So, of course, part of David's failure to act and discipline his son is because he'd kind of done the same. David had forced himself upon a woman, killed her husband to cover up the crime. He sees his son doing something quite similar. How do I, how do I talk to him without being a hypocrite? He's paralyzed by his failure. That could be true in a whole different number of levels for many of us. Our own insecurities prevent us from talking, helping other people. So you look at someone and think, oh, yeah, she's got a, she's, she is so angry. She just drives people away from her. But, you know, I don't want to get involved. I'm not perfect. She'll come back and tell me my faults. I don't know. Yeah, so we do nothing. We think their marriage is not in a good way. Someone needs to help them with their marriage. They're fighting a lot. But not me, because then they'll point out all the flaws in my marriage, so I 
just don't want to get involved. It's very common, very common indeed. It's a, our own failures prevent us from acting. They paralyze us. And what David needed to know was that he had been forgiven for his mistake. So he could help others with theirs. I don't know if you remember, uh, 1980s film, uh, The Mission. Uh, Robert De Niro is the main character. And Robert De Niro is, is Mendoza. Uh, so it's set in um, uh, Latin America, uh, 19th century. Uh, no, earlier than that, sorry. 17th century. And um, uh, Spanish, Spanish are there. And uh, Mendoza is a slave trader, essentially. Uh, collecting natives, brutal, violent, nasty man. And uh, eventually he gets into a fight with his brother, kills his brother. At that moment in time he thinks, what sort of man am I? And is paralyzed by his guilt. He meets um, Father Gabriel. Father Gabriel says, come help me. I'm set up a school, uh, a mission station amongst the natives. Come and help me teach them, protect them. Uh, but Mendoza is just paralyzed by his guilt. He goes on this journey. If you've seen the film, he goes on this journey with a massive sack, dragging his sack of weapons behind him the tools of his former life. He physically drags his guilt with him up the mountainside. And it's he's useless. He's useless as a man. He can't do anything because all he can do is just drag this heavy bag of weapons. Until eventually, I don't know, halfway through the film, one of the one of the natives comes up to him with a knife and cuts the bag. And his bag tumbles down a waterfall. And Mendoza cries, De Niro. And then he laughs. Because in that moment he's, he's been forgiven. One of the people he'd abused terribly has said, come on, move on with your life. And from that moment onwards, he's a forgiven man and he's useful. He works with the natives. He protects them. He's a man again who can get on and serve and be useful to others. Once he knows He's been forgiven. He's no longer paralyzed by his guilt. Now, what you have in that little instant, that little story, it's a picture. There is forgiveness means we can move on from the paralysis of our failure. Let me try and land that a little more practically. That is the impact of Jesus Christ in your life when you become a Christian. The essential Christian message, all of us, without exception, you and me, are sinful. The things we, the things we do, the things we fail to do are offensive to God to varying degrees, but all of us are sinful. There's only one man who's lived a perfect life, Jesus Christ. Our sin deserves God's punishment. His perfection deserves nothing but reward. And on the cross, there's a, a swap. He takes our punishment and we can have his reward. It's very simple, a swap. Now, what does that difference does that make? Practically all the difference in the world. Because if you believe that, you could admit your failures and move on. You don't need to be defensive. You don't need to defend your reputation. So someone can come up to you and say, I think you've got a problem with anger. Now, the natural instinct in all of us is to say, how dare you? How dare you? Mr. Pot calling me angry? That's ridiculous. You're... But if we understand forgiveness in Jesus Christ, someone can ask us and say, you have a problem with anger. You can say, quite honestly, yeah, to be honest, it's worse than you know. Help me? Why don't we help one another change in this area? 
Because when you know forgiveness and you're accepted, you don't need to be defensive, defend your reputation. You can admit your mistakes and move forward. And David needed to embrace that. He's paralyzed by the mistakes of the past. So he's angry, but does nothing. He needed to accept that he was forgiven. So we. So do we. So he's got Amnon's loveless lust, David's paralyzed fury. Uh, very briefly, Absalom's ruthless hatred. Well, as I said, Absalom then, verse 20, he's no comfort uh, to his sister either. But what he does do is brood. Verse 22, he never says a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he disgraced his sister. Verse 23, two years later, he kills his half-brother. He's been brewing on this for two years. He is indeed a chip off the old block, like father, like son. The apple hasn't fallen too far from the tree. Amazing. How often we say things like that. He's murdered in a way just like his father has to avenge his crime. Just because he's brooded. It's just grown. Now look, let's get to the main point in one sense of the whole story for us. Let's look at the last thing, Jesus' gracious warning. Did you hear what he said in in Matthew? And the famous Sermon on the Mount. In many ways, it's the part of Jesus' teaching that people declare that they love. But I mean, it's quite hard to love it when you read it all the way through. But did you hear what he said? You've heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. Is he just making a moral equivalent there? I I take it that everyone in this room has been angry. I don't don't like to cast aspersions, but I think I'm a realist in that. At some point, it may only have been with the taxi driver in in the vehicle in front of you that you've never even met before, but everyone has been angry at some point and lustful. Is Jesus really saying we're all on a moral equivalent with someone who has committed premeditated murder? No, he is not. Those are not morally equivalent actions. But what he is saying is lying behind murder is the attitude of anger and rage. Lying behind adultery is the attitude of lustfully looking at someone else. And so Jesus is just pointing out, look, Amnon, Absalom, don't think of them as loons who are a million miles away from us. Don't think of them as people morally repugnant on the complete end of beyond the pale. They are very different, I hope, from you and me, but only by degree is Jesus' point. The right circumstances, and our anger might boil over. Our lust might boil over in the certain circumstances. So don't think of them as people way out there and we're fine here and we've got no problem. See, Jesus' gracious warning is don't look at 2 Samuel 13 and say, those wicked men, look at them all, those failures. Jesus' warning is read this chapter and say to yourself, I display the same attitude. I don't commit the crime in the same way, but I do display the same attitude. And Jesus' warning is, 
by my standards, no one earns a place in heaven. By my standards, says Jesus, no one is innocent and deserves God to embrace them, accept them. But that is a lesson that's so hard to take on board and absorb. Let me finish this. A friend of mine years ago was at Theological College. And you spend all your time at Theological College. What do you do? You study the Bible, essentially. That's what you're there to do. And um, But uh, he did one year. He spent a year, a whole year in um, uh, a course in the New Testament, uh, looking at various things. And it came to the end of the year and exam time. And they go into the exam room, and everyone's looked at the past papers. It's the same guy who's been teaching this exam for 15 years. They look at the past papers. We know what's coming up. We know the sort of things that happen. They walk into the exam, and it's a stinker. And at absolute beast of an exam. Not unfair. I mean, it was all on the syllabus, but really just at the periphery of the syllabus with the more obscure issues. You know, everyone had revised topic X because it always comes up. It didn't come up. Just a complete beast of an exam. And everyone was really annoyed afterwards. Anyway, you have to wait 10 days or something, the results get posted, and in this college the results get posted on a big board, always embarrassing that, they got posted on the big board, and they all went up, and obviously passes 40%, but they all wanted firsts, and things like that, passes 40%, as they look down their names, 12%, 13%, Ooh, well done, 18%, I think the top mark was 19%, Flunk? I'm not going to flunk the exam. This is ridiculous. And there's this crowd assembled outside the tutor's door, and everyone's banging. And you know, he's, I mean, he's a showman, so he waited to you know the noise to really rise. And everybody's got everyone in the corridor, and uh, opens his door. Ah, how dare! This is just unfair. It's just ridiculous. And he just said nothing. He just gave them all back their exam papers, and he had their marks on them: twelve percent pass, fourteen percent. Pass. Just handed them all back. What is going on? He said, I spent a year teaching you New Testament. A year teaching the essential message of the Bible, which is all of us fall short of God's standard. And the only way we can be accepted is, is the gift of Jesus dying in our place. I spent a year teaching you that. And I set you an exam, and you've all failed. But I very kindly have given you a pass, even though you don't deserve it. Will you now understand what Christianity is about at the end of the year? And they all said, Oh, I'm very sorry. I'm very sorry, indeed. <laughs> terribly sorry about that. Very clever. I mean, it took him 15 years to get to that moment of genius as a, as a teacher. But you, well, that's what he's doing. There's the message of Christianity. We'll fall short of, G- of God's standards, but Jesus has died in our place. He generously gives us life, generously gives us forgiveness. Oh, it'll transform you. It'll give you access to heaven in the next life. It'll transform you in this life. Do you, does that make any sense to you? Or are you knocking on God's door saying, how dare you? It takes a while to work out what is being said. But here he's warning. Hear the warning of Jesus Christ and then embrace, embrace his forgiveness. Let me lead us in prayer together. Our Father, this is a brutal chapter and uh, we'd rather not look at it. But Jesus is 
diagnosis of our own hearts is even more uncomfortable and we'd much rather steer clear of that. Much easier to look at these men of Amnon and Absalom and say, gosh, they're ghastly, I'm glad I'm not like them. But we know you don't, Jesus isn't letting us do that. So Father, would we be honest before you about the anger, the lust that lies within us? Would we recognize how wonderful it is that we can be forgiven for those things, not paralyzed, but forgiven, admit our failures and change? Go forward. So, Father, help us understand what Jesus is talking about so we'd embrace the forgiveness that he offers. And we ask it in his name. Amen.